0: Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. These days, I feel like I can't make sense of the news until I've talked it out with my friends. So I made a new show where we do that every week. It's called It's Been a Minute. That's my way of saying let's catch up.
1: Find It's Been a Minute now on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast.
0: Thanks.
2: Now, before we start, how's about you go review us in iTunes? Seriously, just go to iTunes and let us know what you think. It really helps other very attractive listeners, such as yourself, find the show. Here's a recent five-star review from Rabid Giraffe. Quote, enjoy very much, end quote. See, you don't have to write a novel. Short, sweet, and to the point will do. Please and thanks. Now, let's start the show. Rachel Ward is a dedicated seltzer drinker. She's been drinking it since she was a kid.
3: Juice in our house was always cut with with seltzer. Like a full full glass of juice, are you crazy? Juice costs money. (laughs) And seltzer does not? Uh, We made our own. What? Yeah, you know how clowns like will like yep. shoot you mm-hmm. with a... Yeah, so we had one of those.
2: So while Rachel grew up making her own seltzer with a soda siphon, her pal Travis Larchak has always felt kind of ambivalent about the carbonated drink.
0: To me, seltzer is such an innocuous beverage choice. Whenever you see someone drinking a seltzer, it's almost like watching somebody at an ice cream shop pick vanilla ice cream or something. <laughs> Like of all of the beverages you could have chosen, you picked the one carbonated beverage that is designed not to taste like anything, basically.
2: Naturally, that ambivalence makes Travis the perfect co-host for a podcast about seltzer, specifically a seltzer deathmatch which incidentally is the name of Travis and Rachel's show.
3: I think of Travis as our listener proxy. Mm. Like he's the sort
2: of like, I'm skeptical guy during an infomercial. Seltzer Deathmatch is a carbonated water competition in podcast form. Think of it as March Madness for fizzy drinks.
0: Now that we're toward the end of our season, I feel like I am also a believer in seltzer he
3: believes that seltzer exists now i had to show him 16 different bottles of seltzer but he finally he finally agrees
0: the bubs are out there
2: (laughs) i'm lauren ober and from wamu and npr this is the big listen the broadcast about podcasts each week on the show we introduce you to podcasts you might not have ever heard of and we give you the inside scoop on shows you already love our pals travis and rachel they didn't just fall off the podcast truck both of them have day jobs making shows.
0: My boss wants me to mention, I'm a producer for Ask Me Another, NPR's hours of puzzles, word games, and trivia.
2: Don't worry, <laughs> we will certainly mention that you are both radio professionals.
0: Oh great, <laughs> you wouldn't good. know from listening to our podcast. <laughs>
2: because it won't be clear. <laughs> the pair came up with the idea for the Seltzer Deathmatch when they work together at a popular public radio show that is produced overnight. When you're
3: working overnight, you lose your mind and so you you need like little like goal lines throughout the night to just help you survive and uh, one of those goal lines uh, when I was working on the overnight became drinking this uh, seltzer that was in the vending machine at our work and it was Adirondack raspberry lime seltzer
2: that particular seltzer took on a mythic quality at the office and we started joking
3: about how we were going to make a podcast called This American Seltzer,
2: which they actually ended up making.
3: But it doesn't feel sustainable every, every time to do a parody episode of This American Life. No. So, so, so Travis came up with the idea of making it a competition-based show, making it a death match where we would pit seltzers against each other and then find the best seltzer in America.
2: We'll catch up with Rachel and Travis in a bit to see what the criteria are for judging seltzer. And we'll crack open a bottle ourselves, all over ourselves. I'm going to open this right now. Let's see. Oh, sh- <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> but first, we're going to talk about water of a different kind, the salty sea. Well, specifically, the vessels that cross our oceans to bring us cheap clothes, fancy electronics, and all manner of junk that we don't really need. I'm talking about container ships.
1: Containers are those boxes you see on cargo ships and on the backs of semi-trucks. And almost everything that you buy once traveled in one of them. From your shoes to your phone to even like the windows of your house.
2: Containers is a new documentary podcast series from Alexis Madrigal, editor-at-large at Fusion Media. It charts the impact of the global shipping trade on the world economy. Now, that topic might not shoot you out of bed in the morning, but it is something that affects us all, whether we know it or not. Alexis Madrigal, host of Containers, welcome to The Big Listen.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: Okay, so you, um, you mentioned on your show... Uh, that this is a niche topic, global shipping. Um, What piqued your interest in the topic? You know, I happen to just
1: go out on a ship. um, (laughs) And when I got out on the container ship on the Port of Oakland, uh, we got into this wood-paneled room uh, you know, kind of the conference room, I suppose, on the ship, and uh there was one like sort of human artifact in there, and it was this uh Pablo Picasso sketch mm-hmm. uh and I just remember like that that image of this entire space where everything is dedicated to the moving of stuff. And then there are these people who maintain these little tiny, like, vestiges of the human spirit uh, (laughs) within this massive cargo ship. Like, that just really stuck with me. And then in walks this guy uh, with the most incredible voice. I now think he's probably Romanian. I thought he was Russian at the time, but there's a lot more Romanian captains. And he just sits down across from me with his, you know, pack of Marlboro Reds and just goes, What is your intent? (laughs) It was like... (laughs) I never hear these voices. I want to hear these voices all the time, um, and that was really it. You know, uh, there's so many people in this documentary that you just don't really get to hear. There's like, you know, the black metal head who's like out on the port driving a bus. You know, there's these Filipino sailors who you never hear. There's people working uh, in warehouses and you know on tugboats. It's an incredible moment being right up against this thing. I expected it to crunch more or something, to really feel like we were muscling it, but it doesn't. There's no sound of metal straining. The tugboat hardly seems to move. The water simply parts, and the wall of metal looming above us rotates.
4: So this is a light ship, right? 600 feet, drawing 27 and a half feet. That's not much volume you got pushed around, right? You got to displace some water.
0: Patty, dead torque.
4: Dead.
1: The last task will be to ride alongside the ship as we head out. The tugs act as brakes so the big ship doesn't get going too fast.
3: We're, we're going alongside
4: right now. So, so most of these ships, they're, they're like, if you put it in terms of a car, their first gear is like eight knots or
1: nine knots. You know, then I started just to kind of start to think about like what is a port? Could this be actually a perfect microcosm for exploring how capitalism actually works right now? You know, mm-hmm. the people who are inside of it, the stuff moving around, the bits and the data that's overlaid on on top of the real mm-hmm. world. And it was the voices. I mean, it was just the people.
2: So uh, one thing that I um, found particularly interesting, something I didn't know when I was listening to your show, was that the the. Container ship that we see everywhere in, in every major port is fairly. It's a fairly new concept. It's a new invention. It, it hasn't actually been around that long. I mean, maybe that's like. Maybe that's no. I had it no idea. It's like, <laughs> oh, that makes sense. Like, build a box and put the stuff in the box and put the box on the boat. You know, um, but it's actually it has a pretty interesting story. Maybe you can just walk us through you know, how the modern container came to be.
1: So, you know, if you're sending cargo in the mid-1960s, say 1965, there is a kind of tall, skinny boat that has a bunch of different decks. And the cargo is actually stored just kind of like on there. Like, you know, if you ever, you know, packed a U-Haul, you know, and you mm-hmm. put all this stuff in there, that's what longshoremen did, right? They had to fill up the holds of the ship. Uh, in just that way, kind of Tetris-like jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. And so it took hundreds of people, at that time pretty much exclusively men, uh, to go onto the ship, figure out how to pack the stuff. You know, they're like muscling around, you know, hides, raw hides. They're throwing coffee sacks. Uh, In the late 1960s, you have uh, a guy named Malcolm McLean, who's actually out of the trucking industry, who says like, well, you know, what if we can get boxes, you know, that are of a standard size, and we create new types of ships, we retrofit ships or build new ones that have basically a bunch of little cells that you can drop these boxes into. And the, you know, it's kind of was getting off to a, a a bit of a slow start. I mean, it took uh, from the sort of idea of it to the explosion of it, it, took, you know, more than a decade. And and really what kind of touches it off, the the, the containerization of all this cargo, is that the Vietnam War... Requires it <laughs> essentially, um, you know. You have Lyndon Johnson escalating the war, uh, but there's no way to actually get cargo into Vietnam. This mm-hmm. is not a country that had a huge logistical infrastructure, and yet we're trying to put massive amounts of uh, American troops uh, into the country. So they literally build a container port. One of the world's first container ports is in Vietnam in Cameron Bay, and then they build a sister port here in Oakland.
2: Some of the more notable innovations in solving the logistical problems in Vietnam have been in the field of containerization.
0: Here we see a sealand ship which transports by the,
5: the peak of Sealand's business in Vietnam, which was roughly 1970-71, uh, the Vietnam War
1: probably accounted for close to half of Sealand's business. It takes only 700, And what's really wild is that the Oakland side of the operation is still standing, if not still working. The cranes that loaded the cargo being sent to Cameron Bay are right there in the Outer Harbor, which is the part of the port that's closest to the Bay Bridge. I wanted to see them, to stand under them. So Kyle Brunel, who manages cranes for the port, drove me out. Looking up at one of these giants, even these, which are smaller than their descendants, is sublime both in the current sense of awe-inspiring, but also in the old sense of a kind of nobility-inducing terror.
0: But what I find interesting is that these that were developed in the, in the 60s, essentially they're the same today, just larger and, and more advanced. But you've got the key
2: structures. If I drive up I 95 today, I live in Washington, D.C. If I drive up the highway to the Port of Baltimore, um, and there are loads and loads and loads of containers just sitting there waiting uh-huh. to get loaded, unloaded, what is inside of those?
1: oh, my God, everything is inside of those containers. You know, there's, there's one container that's been studied that's fallen to the bottom of the ocean, and <laughs> reading through it, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, one of them is stuffed with hair products, so it's like, you know, 10,000 barrettes and, like, 700 <laughs> turbans and, you know, 1,000 scrunchies and whatever, like, you know. One of them is all tires. You know, one of them is hospital beds, like 130 hospital beds. Yeah. Um, anything, literally anything that you can think of And many things you can't, you know,
2: but but it is interesting to think that literally everything that I mean, unless you are off the grid, making your own clothes, um, making your own food like you are engaging in this global commerce and your things have likely been shipped in a container.
1: And even if you were an off-the-land hippie, who I know and love, actually lots of them here in Northern California, <laughs> there's there's a great essay uh, that ran in a thing called the Whole Earth Catalog, you know, kind of sold mm-hmm. hippie, not just hippie, they were great. The Whole Earth Catalog is an amazing publication that came out of Northern California, mm-hmm. and they ran an essay called um, Where'd Your Axe Come From?
2: right. Right,
1: uh, because let's say you build your own house. Well, are you going to make your own glass? No. Where's the glass <laughs> going to come from? It's going to come from there. Oh, well, you've got something that's made of steel. Well, where does the steel made? Oh, well, you know, it's made in China. Like
3: mm-hmm.
1: the, the idea that you could separate yourself out from the global economy at this point is, is ridiculous. I mean, you just you just absolutely cannot do it. And I think, there's, I think that actually is an important realization because it means that we're all in this system and it means we all kind of have a responsibility to reform the system if that's what we want, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you, it's easy to say global trade is something that's been done to us by elites, right? Mm-hmm. It's much... Because then all you have to do is like change the elites, I suppose. But what mm-hmm. if the price of everything at Target went up 50%, you know? I mean... What would that mean for the people who depend on big-box stores, you know, who can't buy their way out of the ethical complications of the system? As we head for the checkout, we heard this. These beeps from the barcode scanner. Turns out these beeps are a good way to understand the international shipping industry that delivers you the stuff you buy every day. To learn more, I talked with a scholar named Jesse Lecavalier who studied the logistics systems of big-box stores.
5: For me, the the thing that's this kind of overriding feature of these logistical worlds is this, like, tension or this contradiction between the, the, the kind of impulse and the desire to dematerialize everything and then this, like, stubborn reality of just, like, having to move it around all the time. And I think that there's... That still just... It persists. Like,
1: material just persists. In particular, he's looked at the way that data infuses the system. Each time you hear that beep... That's a piece of data being recorded. That data is fed into software, which calculates what products need to go where from what factory. In effect, each beep helps direct everything from the paths of the ships on the ocean to the arrangement of the products on the shelves. The, the deeper I got into this, the more I felt like it, that, that we've actually really lost something with containerization, even though containerization obviously is a huge boon for global trade and just the transformation of the global economy. But we, what we've lost is... In the old days, when a ship came into port, it would unload its stuff onto the pier. And it was just, like, open for inspection. So, like, when the cardamom ship came in, like, Mm. these spice ships would come Mm -hmm. in, you'd smell all the spices. When the coffee ship came in, you'd smell the coffee. When the banana ship came in, you'd smell the banana. You know, like, you knew what what was happening. You know, one old longshoreman said, like, you know, who who just finished high school, didn't go to college. He's like, I learned the world by looking at the goods that were coming in to the piers. Uh, And I think... You know, it's. I had an artist tell me. You know, this this story of containerization is all about alienation, right? It's alienation from where things come from, right? Um, and and I, I actually think that that's that's true. That it's it is important to know these backstories If for no other reason than you just know the system that you're taking uh, that you're taking part in.
2: Alexis Madrigal is the host of the audio documentary Containers from Fusion Media Group. To find out more about his show, check out our website, biglisten.org. Now, when you're talking about the ocean, it's water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. Apologies, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. But when you're talking seltzer deathmatch, from our pals at the top of the show, it is Beverage City. But how does one judge a drink that is basically just water with bubbles? We introduced an actual scoring rubric
3: on the uh, semifinals. The quarterfinal quarter quarterfinals, and it was
2: bub. So the bub profile, flavor, and aesthetics. Aesthetics. In order to determine the contenders for the seltzer death match, Rachel and Travis took a few trips to their local bodega for the cheap tried and drews, as well as an outing or two to Whole Foods for the fancy glass bottle stuff. It's a mix of, like, old, new, high, low, uptown, downtown, for sure. In this round, Travis and Rachel, along with guest judge Zoe Chase from This American Life, went even crazier with their taste test. Upstate versus downstate. The Adirondacks versus Queens. Okay, so we have another one to try, yes?
0: The Howells, New York, seltzer water, black cherry.
2: While Zoe liked the bottle, she was dubious of the name. I gotta say, though, Howells... You know what I mean? Like,
3: I feel like you're trying a little hard to, like, do the, like, old New York, you know, Bronx. Hey, I'm walking over here. Yeah,
2: exactly.
3: You know, like,
2: like, hey, get out of my way. I'm from New York. I got to have a seltzer. You know what I'm like? I'm not feeling that. Like, I don't need you to do that. You're trying. We're going to take a quick break to rehydrate. But when we come back, we'll hear from actress Gillian Jacobs about her deep obsession with true crime podcasts. But first, we're going to check in with another kind of cutthroat competition, the prestigious Van Cliburn International Piano Competition, named for the famed American pianist.
6: Along came Van Cliburn. This tall, lanky 23-year-old ended up winning the Tchaikovsky competition. I mean, come on. An American winning a competition named after one of the most famous Russian composers during the height of the Cold War? I mean, Clyburn's like the James Pond of the classical music world.
2: That's coming up next. Don't go anywhere. This is NPR.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Exxon and Mobil, the exclusive fuel partners of the Plenty Rewards program. 500 points is worth at least $5 in savings. You can pick up a Plenty card at an Exxon or Mobile branded station and start earning points right away. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. At Stoke, they recognize that not every bean measures up. Stoke is steeped at cool temperatures for at least 10 hours to achieve a smooth taste. It's slow brewed, like all the best ideas. Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. Look at you go.
7: Hi, my name is Janice Gentry, and I love what's Ray saying. I live in Richmond, Virginia, and it is really, really, really good, and you should give it a listen.
6: From the source of all black knowledge, hidden away in a secret bunker high in the Blue Ridge Mountains, protected with full fields of fire and man-eating dogs, this is... What's Ray saying? I'm Ray Christian. Now, how is it that people who self-identify or are seen as members of the original peoples of Africa, you know, black people, how come they come in such a wide range of skin
7: complexions? Again, that's uh, what's Ray saying. It's great. You'll love it. Thank you. Bye.
2: Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Over, and I want you to let your fingers do the talking. Call the pod line and tell us what you're listening to. The number is 202-885-POD1. Give us a jingle. Now, I'm guessing that more than a handful of you were subjected to piano lessons when you were young. And likely, those lessons did not lead you to fame or fortune on the classical music circuit. That's because piano is a tricky beast. One wrong note can sour a whole composition. The subjects of the new podcast, The Competition, know that only too well.
7: I tried to practice at least six hours a day. I was practicing. I think I was with piano maybe about 10 hours. I just practiced 12 hours a day.
2: The show follows would-be competitors in the 2017 Van Cliburn International Piano Competition in Fort Worth, Texas. It's the most prestigious piano event in the world.
7: We'll capture the highs. It was always a special moment after the very last note. This second after very last note and before a close. And lows
6: right before you enter and like go onto the stage. And you really feel like like you're really totally shaking. That really happens. Like all of a sudden you really cannot handle your hands and they kind of stop working like in the middle of your performance.
2: James Kim is the host and creator of the podcast. James, welcome to The Big Listen. Hey, Lauren. Uh, so your podcast is all about the Van Cliburn International Piano Competition. Please tell us what that is.
6: Sure. I actually just heard about it maybe a year ago. I had no idea it existed. But basically, if you think about it like a Olympic event, Mm -hmm. or a presidential election. The reason why I'm throwing to those references (laughs) is because it happens every four years, Uh um, and it's worldwide. So that is to say that the contestants come from all around the world, but it happens in Fort Worth, Texas. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty much kind of world-renowned. It's the most prestigious classical piano competition in the world. And then when you go on to win, you know, it's kind of like American Idol. You become this celebrity in the classical music world.
7: Coming from Soviet Union... The whole system was based on. Uh, you know, the, your happiness would come if you one day participate, let's say, in Tchaikovsky International Piano Competition, which Van Kleibern started, right? And won. And uh, well, if you were serious about future in the performing arts, well, competitions were a part of life. And Van Kleibern International Competition is one of the most powerful in the respect of giving you a chance to start the career.
2: So when you heard about this, well, first of all, are you, are, are you a musician yourself?
6: I used to be mm-hmm. in marching band. <laughs> so.
2: <laughs> okay, so a little different than that classical piano. Yeah. Wait, what did just you play? What did you play? I
6: played the, <laughs> I played the drums. Okay. And also, uh, <laughs> just banging on a drum. Right, exactly. So I'm exactly. not that qualified.
2: Okay. You know, you didn't grow up knowing about um, no knowing about these types of competitions because I imagine that you know for other classical instruments there are these types of competitions but you were on the drum line so you weren't doing yeah. That.
6: exactly okay
2: so then yeah. what was what piqued your interest about the competition why did you want to follow it
6: one of my favorite pieces of just like entertainment are competition shows on tv Uh huh. i watch rupaul's drag race on a <laughs> weekly basis <Yes. laughs> and i'm watching top chef you know i grew up on american idol and there's something about this drama of everyday people coming together and kind of forced to to show their talents mm-hmm. and and be one on one with each other. That I, I don't know why it's addicting for me to just kind of see that drama and see kind of like how people react in those situations. Right. But that's kind of what drew me to just an idea of just making a podcast about competitions. Mm-hmm. It's it truly is. It's like who are these people and and what happens when you go into these competitions and it tests your character and it kind of leads to really surprising things.
2: Mm-hmm. And they're, they're everyday people in that they might not be household names, but they're people of extraordinary talent.
6: Yeah, that's, I mean, such a key thing. that That passion behind what they're doing. Every single person that I talk to has started playing piano when they were like five or six, like mm-hmm. basically when I like learned right. how to talk. Right. I mean, I'm a slow learner, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's just shocking to me to hear these kids talk about, they've been playing piano for 20 years. I have not done anything that long in my right. life. right? So it's just kind of incredible.
2: And there's an age limit though. That's part of the reason I gather that the competition is so intense.
6: So for these competitions, there's an age cutoff. For the Clyburn, you can only compete if you're between 18 and 30.
7: I felt this pressure, you know, this pressure of last opportunity to basically launch my career. And this was another, hmm, I should say, interesting experience.
6: That's one way to put it. Around 2,000 people squeezed into the Bass Performance Hall in Fort Worth, Texas, to watch these contestants play. And in 2013, the competition was also streamed online, where hundreds of thousands of people watched Vadim compete for the title. So if he made a mistake,
7: the whole world was watching. For me, myself, I decided that if I'm nervous, okay, it's fine.
3: Uh,
6: In order to become a professional performing classical pianist, you have to do one of these competitions. And the Uh one with the most exposure is Van Cliburn. That's the one that's gonna launch your career. Mm -hmm. So if you do not make this cut, then it's going to be really tough for you to get noticed after this. Mm-hmm. And spoiler alert, if you haven't listened in all the episodes for anyone listening, you know, that <laughs> happens to some of the people that we talk with. It, it's it's kind of heartbreaking.
2: So, yeah, there was this one guy, and I, I can't remember the names of all of the characters, but his story stuck out to me because he was this elite pianist. He got into the top 30, and during the competition, he somehow scalded his hand with hot water.
7: What happened is just that I was in the summer final round, about to play it, and uh, you know, I had an accident with my hand. Yeah, I, I burned it with the boiling water. Just an accident in the morning, hot, hot tea, and dropped everything on my hand and leg.
6: He had blisters all over his hands. And the doctor told him that he had no other option but to drop out.
7: Of course, it's sad, you know, you're done. You had a great chance and you lose it. But at the same time, I had also, you know, my family. He was in, in Russia, uh, my wife. And um, I was in America, so I started to think. I met new people, uh, new friends. I that was a moment of change in my life actually
2: his basically his whole life fell apart right like he had he had to work in a restaurant his wife was like cleaning houses she was also um a music professional and everything was sort of resting on this competition and then when it didn't happen life went to seed for him
6: yeah the person you're talking about stanislav udenich he he came from um, Uzbekistan, and he he didn't know what to do. So, and he said that he has never been a quote servant, Ugh. his entire any of his life. Um, and so, it was kind of this humbling experience for him. But should I spoil it? I don't know if I should spoil.
2: I mean. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe and, he wins and to find he out wins. Yeah. it's a happy story. Yeah, exactly. He wins four years <laughs> yeah. later.
6: <laughs> yeah. He enters, wins, becomes this world. You know. right, yeah. But he's he doing sa- w-
2: But he says something. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but he said something sure. so interesting where he was like, I went from um, I went from working in a restaurant to flying on private planes. Like that was yeah, the difference exactly. that the Van Cliburn Prize meant for him.
6: Exa- yeah, and that particular story, um, he played at this kind of fancy gathering where a lot of the Van Cliburn winners go off and play, and um, they play on the top floor. He had to play in the lobby where everyone's checking in um, just as a background pianist, and he made a $3 tip that one night <laughs> that he played. After he won, they flew him out there in a pl- private plane, had him play right. on the top floor. Just It's it's just a crazy thing that it it, it changes people's lives.
2: There was one American woman who you follow in the sort of early days.
6: Yeah, Lindsay Garrettson. This competition is streamed live online, which means that the whole world can tune in.
2: I mean, I just remember, you know, getting messages from people I didn't know, commenting on my playing, my dresses, oh my, my hair, my shoes. Oh, I mean, no. just like the amount of scrutiny is, is kind of mind-blowing. And I'm thinking, God, like who would want to put themselves, especially if you're a woman, in this position?
6: Exactly. And, yeah, it's those online commenters that, you know, she worked her entire life for this moment. And all people care about is the shoes and dress that she's wearing Mm -hmm. or if her hair is the right way.
2: Right. And to the exclusion of everything else, I mean, you were they they practice for eight, 10, 12 hours a day, you know? (laughs)
6: Yeah. No, totally. I don't even work like (laughs) seven, eight hours a day. I'm on Reddit most of the time. I
2: know. I'm like, I try to work like one or two hours a day, you know? Exactly. Not too much. I don't want (laughs) to tax myself.
6: But uh, yeah, the one, and I've always asked that with every single contestant. It's just like, you're spending this much time. And they always seem to have this rebuttal of like, Yes, but I'm not just playing piano. Like I have a life outside classical music too.
2: Um, right. Okay, but, kind but of... like really they they, they don't cuz I was reading their bios. Yeah. I read all their bios on the Van Cliburn site and it when it said like, you know, um hobbies, it was like <laughs> tim timothy also likes to watch tv and and watch movies like that was yeah. like the that was like the here are the other things that he's involved in yeah, or like exactly like like jane is an avid um italian speaker as well and you're like wait what like <laughs> that's your hobby cute but i like
6: to walk on like walk on the, walk beach. On the beach that's what right. i like exactly. to do on the my exactly. side yeah. <laughs> like they would have the
2: worst dating profiles online because it would just be like it would just be like classical music the and yeah. <laughs> I mean I'm sure they do That's don't.
6: actually where they took their bios. <laughs> they just went on, you know, <laughs> OK Cupid right. and then they just grabbed it from there, you know.
2: James Kim is the host of the competition. To find out more about the show, check out our website biglisten.org. We're going to take another super quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk with actress Gillian Jacobs about how her childhood love of mysteries and thrillers morphed into an obsession with true crime podcasts.
4: Of course, probably like a lot of people, loved In Cold Blood when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. Truman Capote. And, you know, books like Executioner's Song, Norman Mailer, and and so... Really light reads you're into. Really
2: light reads. That's coming up in a sec on The Big Listen. Stick around. This is NPR.
7: Hey, it's Guy Raz here. If you love this podcast, you might also love the TED Radio Hour. It's a show about what it means to be a human. We grieve. We experience joy, sadness, love, and jealousy. We can be cruel and empathetic. We have the capacity to imagine the future and the past. And at a time when it seems we're so divided, the TED Radio Hour explores what makes us unique among all species. Find it on Apple Podcasts, the NPR One app, or however you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Owen
0: Rosenthal in Woodstock, New York, and I'd like to recommend the Seneca podcast that's spelled S I N I C A. It's broadcast by two young men who live in Beijing. They talk with writers, and journalists, and academics, and policymakers. They've even talked uh, to Sidney Rittenberg about what it meant to be in solitary confinement under the communists that he supported.
6: The first American to actually join the Chinese Communist Party, a man who became personally acquainted with many of the towering figures of the Chinese Revolution, including Mao Zedong himself. It's
0: lively and fascinating and a good way to view things in China, including their attitude, of course, toward Trump. Good listening.
2: Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and I think it's high time you call me. I have been waiting long enough. The pod line number is 202-885-POD1. So call me and tell me about your number one podcast. All right, friends, it's that time again. We call it Listen Up Time, and it's the part of the show where we grill some pretty cool folks about what podcasts they're into these days. Gillian Jacobs is an actress whose star is certainly on the ascent these days. You might know her from her breakout role on the TV sitcom Community, or you may remember her from her starring role in the 2016 movie Don't Think Twice, or you may currently be watching her in the second season of the hit Netflix show Love.
4: Where do you live in LA?
7: Um, you know the Hollywood side?
4: Mhm.
7: I actually live inside the letter O.
4: Which one? There are 3.
7: Good question. It's a great question. Um, Well, not the first, though, because the rent's insane.
2: Obviously.
4: Uh,
7: But for
2: our purposes, Gillian, not Jillian, is a podcast devotee. When she isn't acting, she's listening to podcasts, specifically true crime podcasts. And in her fantasy world, Gillian would also host a podcast all about her random obsessions. But sadly for the world, she's a bit overscheduled to commit to that. Gillian Jacobs, welcome to The Big Listen.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: All right. So you don't have a podcast. Normally we talk to people who have podcasts, but you don't have one, do you? Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Yet. All right. So if, if you were to have one, what would it be about?
4: I think I would call it my random obsessions because oh. I always get really into something, whether it's a person or a book or a movie or an artist, and maybe I would just highlight whoever I'm obsessed with that week.
2: So, like, how obsessed do you get? Are we talking, like, just basic, like, I'm consuming what they make? Or are you, like, deep internet stalking them, like, watching everything they've ever done? Like, how, how intense is your obsession?
4: It really depends my obsession with the television show Vanderpump Rules has been going on for several years. And I will do deep dives on all of their Instagram accounts early in the morning or late at night. Uh, I uh, I wrote an article about this woman named Anita Luce who'd been a writer and a screenwriter and so I read some books about her and I wrote an article. So that's a pretty good, that's a pretty healthy obsession, right? Yeah. So,
2: you could have a very unhealthy obsession. It seems like this is, you know, like, yeah, this I'm, will not, get you somewhere. I'm not
4: dressing up like Mary Pickford yet, so I think it's still okay.
2: <laughs> Meet the royal family of the movies
5: Fairbanks, Pickford, Chaplin, and D.W. Griffith, the famous director. These four were easily the biggest names in pictures in the early days.
2: Have, have you visited all of the homes where they used to live?
4: Well, that's another thing you've actually beautifully segued into another obsession <laughs> of mine, which is buildings in Los Angeles that have been torn down. Oh. So uh, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks had this very famous home called Pick Fair. So I would have loved to have gone to Pick Fair, but it no longer exists. So yeah, you read, you know, you read about early Hollywood history in a lot of these homes and early film studios or places that no longer exist in Los Angeles, so it's very frustrating for me.
2: I mean, I, I can already hear this as a podcast, but I feel like you you just don't maybe have the time to do it. Like, And now I'm sad because I would like to listen to this show that you have not yet produced and you don't have time to do.
4: You know, I'm sure there's some enterprising young person out there who would like to do most of the work for me.
2: We can put a call out right now if anybody wants to work with Gillian Jacobs on her as yet untitled podcast about uh, the, <laughs> the history of Los Angeles and Hollywood
4: this also i guess dovetails into what we're supposed to talk about which is podcasts that i do listen to (laughs) and i feel like karina longworth with you must remember this does such great work
3: and this is another installment in our ongoing series
7: dead blondes where are you going to hollywood hollywood do you come here for excitement
3: Today we bring you the first of three episodes about the woman, the actress, the myth, and the death of Marilyn Monroe.
2: In the coming weeks... I found out that you were a podcast listener because you did a Two Dope Queens live show here in Washington, D.C., and you admitted to a deep love of podcasts, but specifically true crime podcasts. Yes, yes. It's true. What true crime podcasts have caught your ear at the moment?
4: I really like the show Crime Town. Mm-hmm.
5: Question. Did he kick you? Answer. Yes. Question. Where did he kick you? Answer. On my right chin. Question. Did he try to burn you with a cigarette? Answer. Yes. Question, did you have a cigarette burn on your face after the incident? Answer, yes, in my left eye. Question, at some point, did the mayor swing a fireplace log at you? Answer, yes. This is a transcript of grand jury testimony from a victim of a brutal assault. An assault committed by the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah, that's right. The mayor.
4: Yes. Yeah, so mayor it deals a lot with here. the mob there, with the mayor. the mayor, his relationship to corruption, and then sort of, it sort of establishes a cast of characters in the early episodes and then sort of takes, you know, each episode exploring different people, different decade, their relationship to crime in the city.
2: Okay, so Crime Town. All right, what else?
4: Accused. Oh. I listened to Accused. Yeah,
2: right there. He was acquitted, but officials
3: said the jury got it wrong.
0: And I vividly remember Mr. Andy standing up and saying, "Then who killed
5: my
2: daughter?"
3: That's the question two journalists from the Cincinnati Enquirer have been working to answer for nearly a year. This is an open case. Don't give her anything. You should you know, keep the file shut and whatever. And yet nobody was investigating it. Nobody was investigating the murder. Nobody had been investigating the murder for a long time.
7: The thing about it was
2: the police... So do we have any final it. recommendations or, well, I uh, see, I would ask you if there are shows that you've tried and you've hated, but I feel like you're too nice to even
4: say that. I would never. Uh, no. Oh, yeah, I remembered another podcast that I love, which is my friend Chris Gethard's podcast, Beautiful oh, sure. Anonymous. Yeah. Um, Oh, and then here's a whole other thing, which is my strange history with appearing on the show Comedy Bang Bang and how (laughs) the fans of that show are so obsessive that it has taken on an entire life of its own. Wait, Um, tell
2: me I know nothing about this.
4: Okay, so there's this show called Comedy yes. Bang Bang, which was also a television show. Right.
2: <laughs> and
4: when I first appeared on the show, I had never listened to it. I didn't really know anything about it, but I quickly picked up on the fact that, okay, one person goes on doing a character and the other guest appears <laughs> as themselves and it's hosted by Scott Ackerman. Right. And so... I think maybe my second appearance on the show, um, the great comedian Paul Tompkins Mm -hmm. was on portraying Gary Marshall, the late great director.
6: (laughs) You're thinking of Fonzie.
4: And for for some reason in the moment, I decided to create my own persona, which is a version of myself, which is kind of a a ruthless gold digger. How much money do you have? Oh, how much how much you want me to have? So (laughs) I uh, very blatantly on the podcast proposed to Gary Marshall that we kill his wife and I marry him oh, for boy. his money.
3: Wait, hey, hold on. Who talked
5: about killing a wife
3: here? Well, then
4: I was thinking if we killed her, you wouldn't have to give her half your money. We wouldn't have to go through a drawn-out divorce. You're not going to
5: give your wife half your money, though, right? Oh,
4: he's if, got to. So this went on over the course of several years with our various appearances on the show where I'm trying to convince him to marry me or put his wife into suspended animation and we were going to get things like a Bel-Air divorce. Or so. I can't even remember. It became so elaborate. <laughs> At one point, the uh comedy bang bang listeners changed Gary Marshall's Wikipedia page to say that he was married to me. <laughs> so, yes, now now, you know, having a recurring role on comedy bang bang has become a, a very important part of my life and career.
2: I mean, when um when do you find the time to listen to uh to podcasts?
4: I listen to podcasts all the time. I listen to them on my commute. I listen to them while I'm doing chores around the house I even listen to them in the shower
2: <laughs> wait hold on what do you put it on a speaker explain this
4: so yeah so I put it on speaker and I there's a little shelf in my shower and I put my phone in there and I listen to it this
2: is, this is very delightful and also revealing uh <laughs> I mean are you listening to like see I, I don't listen to the real gory, like, hacker kind of podcasts, like, you know, slasher kind of crime podcasts. in there. I feel like that, that might be unsettling in the shower.
4: Yes. I, yeah. Well, I don't only listen to true crime podcasts. I like myths and legends. So, you know, <laughs> listening about Norse mythology is not really going to upset you.
7: And we'll end with the story of how Odin lost one of his eyes and what he saw when he did.
4: invisible has yet to, you know, terrify me.
0: The sculpture had shown Lennon striding into a
1: breezy future, one that just barely rippled his marble suit coat.
4: Two dope queens. That makes me laugh. And I had ripped the (laughs) seat all the way down my butt, so you just saw, like, my pink thong. You know, I listened to uh, Dear Sugar.
3: Dear Sugars, my husband is emotionally abusive. I know I need to leave him, but I'm so completely stuck.
4: I listen to all kinds of podcasts. Yeah, okay. There's one for every mood.
2: Gillian Jacobs is one of the stars of the Netflix show Love. To find out more about any of the podcasts she recommended, hit up biglisten.org. It's got the details. Well, we've almost reached the end of this week's episode. Oh, no. But before we let you go time for chartography chartography is our 60 second mapping of the iTunes charts we're not looking at number one or even number 100 we're looking at number 289 and if you achieve a 289 ranking then you are pretty good my friend okay this week's show took copious notes on this this week's show is the James Altucher show Altucher It's spelled A-L-T-U-C-H-E-R. It's hosted by a man named James Altucher. My handle
6: is at J Altucher.
2: And he apparently is a hedge fund manager, an investor, a writer, an entrepreneur.
6: I
7: actually always
5: encourage people to write down lists of ideas, but then throw them out. Ah.
2: He has a podcast, which is why I'm talking about him. And in the beginning it says
1: This isn't your average business podcast James isn't your average
2: average host Yeah so this guy Talks with um, Talks with guests who they've, They've made it big in tech or they've made it big in finance Or whatever he's talked with Mark Cuban and Tim Ferriss and a lot of other men. There are, are also a couple of women that he talks to. Um, the episode that I listen to, he talks to a man named Matt Mullenweg.
6: And I'm going to let you talk in one second, but I have to really build build you up. Who
2: apparently developed WordPress, the blogging and web platform.
1: Bam, you have like a website, you pick like a template.
2: And that guy started that company when he was just 19 years old.
1: It really is my life's
2: work. So clearly he has some tips and tricks that he could give you. Probably the biggest tip or trick that he give you is like be really really smart and motivated um, which I guess he was but anyway James gets to the bottom of it in his uh, in his interview that's what he does he talks to people about their things
6: your company essentially is the dream of the internet so
2: if you want to be successful listen to James's show. to the big listen on the go well guess what you can just go to itunes or nbr1 or any fine purveyor podcasts and hit subscribe then we will just be slip sliding into your feed like you didn't even have to do anything just automatically there we are also please leave us a review as always, we love us some listener feedback. Please like us on Facebook and or follow us on Twitter. We're at Peer Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R, Big Listen. So follow us. We're tremendous. Absolutely tremendous. If you want to send us love notes, our electronic mail address is BigListen at WAMU.org. The show was produced, mixed, and edited today by Jacob Fenston and Ponce Rutch. I, Lauren Over, was busily guzzling seltzer. Was busily... Busily guzzling. Did I just say that? Dave Chulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army-Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man J.J. Yore and is produced by WMU and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America, a.k.a. The Swamp. And now a few final thoughts from our pals, Rachel Ward and Travis Larchuk, the well-hydrated minds behind the seltzer deathmatch. Is there going to be another seltzer deathmatch or is this the final word? Like this is the end-all be-all of seltzer competitions? So
3: a thing that I've been getting really into lately is regional seltzers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it turns out once you have a seltzer podcast, people (laughs) will insist that whatever seltzer they grew up drinking is the best. And it's a big world, and there's a lot of seltzers out there. Uh, so I think from a like a supply perspective, there there are 16 more seltzers that we could put in a bracket.
0: I will say that just as America's Next Top Model has probably not found America's Next Top Model, despite <laughs> being on for however many cycles. I feel like after one season of Seltzer Deathmatch, we will have not actually found America's best seltzer. I think it's going to take at least 15 more seasons (laughs) to come close.
2: Well, at least their skin will look great. Till next time.
0: Three, two, one. Keep Keep it fizzy, America. All right, now we'll do one where we're over it. Three, two, one. Keep Keep it fizzy, fizzy, America. America. All right, now let's just do one as normal people. All right, three, two, one. Keep Keep it busy, busy, America. America. All right, there you go.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This is NPR. Hey, you're still here. What a surprise. Well, since you're still here, maybe you could go do me a favor. Go to iTunes, review our show, tell us what you think give us some stars. We would really appreciate it. It really helps other people just like yourselves, very attractive listeners, find the show. So thanks.